Hey everyone, welcome to Take a Second, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast meant to strengthen our personal connections with Jesus Christ, as well as deepen our appreciation for His role in our Heavenly Father's universal plan of salvation. I'm Brian Ricks, and Stuart Black is here with me. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into uh, let's get into this week's scripture block. All right, well, uh, welcome back. You'll notice a change of scenery. Uh, we've had several comments about maybe a little bit of quieter uh, setting, less uh, audio distraction. Some of you may or may not be aware. One of the reasons that we were doing the the podcast where we were up until this point was that it was a class for the institute here at Polk Hill. And we're in the middle of finals week. Yep. So students are, the building is vacant and there's no one around. So for those of you who have wanted a quieter setting, um, we found your some, dreams have come true. That's right. <laughs> Not only is it quieter, we're now in the middle of some <laughs> tropical dreamland. Um, so yeah, we will have uh, this the podcast moving forward will be a little bit different, a little different setting. Um, but uh, yeah, same content, pretty yep. much. Same, same format, just different setting. Um, this week we're doing, so this week, come follow me. We're going to, there's a, there's a lot here. Luke 14 to 16, 12 to 16. Yeah, it was 11 or something. Um, and we may come back and hit some of these if we choose to do a, a a 2.0 version, but we really wanted to spend some time with Luke 15, the, the lost parables, um, lost sheep, lost coin and lost son. It also had uh, John, uh, John 11 was on there too. Raising Ooh, a Lazarus. Right. Lazarus. So this was a, I mean, it's we hard to, to. We might have to do a 2.0 <laughs> since it's finals week. Yeah, we have time we have to, some space. Um, so that's that's uh, kind of where we're going today. And then maybe look for an update for a, a part two later on as we'll go back and hit some of these. Because you've got, there's some other great things uh, in these other chapters. But the parables, the lost parables need need some sufficient time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when uh, one of the first times I was uh, preparing to teach this, uh, another teacher is like uh, was preparing a presentation, and sometimes people ask sometimes what we do in the summer as seminary and institute teachers, and mostly they think we just sit in our offices or play ping pong or something, and, and some of that is true uh, it's because we did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we were going to uh, an in-service meeting, and I was asking him. Um, so it's a training for teachers, and I was asking him what he was going to be uh, presenting on. He said, "Oh, I'm I'm doing the lost parables." I'm like, "Lost parables?" I'm like. Which one's got lost? <laughs> so I thought he meant literally that, like the misplaced parables. And I was like, he's like, no, the parables of the lost. I was like, oh yeah, well, no, that makes a little bit more sense. The lost parables. But I was like, Who lost them? I'm like cutting edge. Like when did, when were they found? So uh, these uh, these uh, three parables, and, and you and I talked briefly just yesterday about yep. it, that uh, about the the title of them, and I, I got me thinking. I wonder where all these original titles, you know, uh, come from for the parables. What people have been calling them for hundreds of years, but I, it's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son yep. is another way to look at it. It's not just the prodigal son, um, but it is the parables of the lost. And, and uh, all of them, and, and just to jump right in, all of them are lost for different reasons. And I, mm-hmm. that's a, an idea President McKay taught a long time ago, yeah. is that uh, the sheep is lost through uh, straying or through um, maybe unconsciously thinking about what it was just looking for success and just kind of wandered where the coin was lost through uh, negligence of the owner, uh, and then the boy willfully disobeyed. And so you have uh, various reasons about why they uh, why they were lost, but the most important part of all of them is that they're found. You get found. That, that's the, the 
the basic idea of these parables is that the, the lost is found. Now, President McKay, in that comment, in that in that talk, he gives he says that these parables kind of provide a roadmap for anyone who's going after someone that's lost. And the first step to do the first step is it, it's a mistake to treat every person who's leaving or has left the church as the same situation. Um, everybody's path is a little different, and everybody's reasons for stepping away is a little different. And and I and I've met I've, I've talked with some that have left the church and and being misdiagnosed for lack of a better term being misdiagnosed is sometimes offensive um, to those that have have chosen not to participate with us and uh, and so Pre in President McKay's quote one of the things that he suggests is as we're asking ourselves as we're going about trying to help people come back to the church these parables provide a roadmap and the first thing to ask first question is why are they lost you know are they lost because they just kind of wandered off on their own and found themselves in a pasture that wasn't the Lord's. Uh, if that's the case, then maybe all you got to do is go get them. Uh, are they lost because they were offended by someone? Because someone else did something that caused them to be lost? Um, or is it somebody that exercising their agency made a choice and they've left on for whatever reason, um, their decision to leave the church was an exercise of their agency that they recognized both choices and they chose the, the one to leave. So that, I, I love that. I think, uh, Joe Smith said, I have a, I have, and this is paraphrased, but he said, I have a key that I use anytime I use the, anytime I read the parables of Jesus. And that is to ask myself, what's the question that elicited the, the parable from the savior. And in this, this context, we, this is one of the things we talked about yesterday. It's really easy to get off in the weeds, so to speak, and not that that's a problem, but if we're trying to really figure out what is it that Jesus is teaching this group at this Context. time, yeah. you've got to pay attention to the first several verses of the chapter. What's going on, and why does Jesus teach these parables in this setting? And it has to do with the experience with the Pharisees. Uh, so verse 1 of chapter 15, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying. So the parable is a, is a, is a response to their complaining about who he's keeping company with. And so everything he says about these three parables is to address their lack of sensitivity for these, for these lost souls. And he's trying to teach them this is how we respond when those who have been lost are found, and you don't get it. So the first one, let's take the, the lost sheep first. Anything? Yeah, and, and I would just, one quick thought to build on this. It's, it's interesting to look at these four groups, publican sinners, Pharisee scribes. And if you spend some time and, and do a little bit of, I mean, you don't have to do a ton of research about what constitutes a sinner. Yeah. But, but like looking into the... <laughs> The actual like Pharisees and and the Pharisees are people who upheld the oral tradition of the law as being equal with the written tradition of the law, um, and then the scribes were kind of the lawyers, so to speak, and so they were the ones who were upholding it uh, as well. And it's it's that judgmental idea. And, and the thing that's awesome about parables is that there's so many different ways to look at them, and where you put yourself. And I, and I found myself thinking, okay, where do I see the Savior in the parable? And where do I see me in the parable? In every single one of them. And and that's the 
that's the great part about some of these uh, thought-provoking uh, parables. I think the the Good Samaritan is similar to that. I think the um, the unjust uh, servant who uh, uh, gets mad at this fellow servant who owes him way less money than he owed the king. That's another one. The laborers in the vineyards, another one where conversions mm-hmm. is going to be one of those. Where you put yourself in there and you're like, where am I? Where am I really fitting in in these parables? And and frankly, which one of these groups am I in? Am I in with the publicans and sinners? They're the ones who are actually going to hear Jesus. It doesn't say the Pharisees and scribes are saying that. They're just observing from a distance, realizing, well, I, I don't know about you, but which one of those groups do I want to be with? I want to be with Jesus. And some of that maybe is I need to acknowledge that I need him. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I think sometimes, let's see if I can put this into words. I, It's almost like the Pharisees are using the Savior's willingness to embrace others as an excuse not to come to him. Mm-hmm. They've, they've kind of, their position has been defined by their, and, and I think originally, I think it starts with a genuine, sincere effort to keep the commandments in every way possible, even in the church today. In fact, we, one of the things that I've, I've thought a lot about is, in the church today, are we more like the Pharisees or are we more like the, the sinners and the publicans? And, and if you're really honest about that question, there ought to be some uncomfortable moments as members of the church. Do we get a little, do we get over-focused on checking the box, on, on doing oral traditions rather than following, you know, the, the spirit of the law? And I'm, I'm one who believes that following the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law is not an excuse to live the law less. I believe the spirit of the law actually raises the bar, but, but I think sometimes— They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, yes. and I think sometimes we get excited about our own checklist as far as— how do you keep the Sabbath day? And we see other people who are not keeping the Sabbath day as well as, as, well as we do, you know, or um, dressing modestly. What does that mean? You know, we've kind of come up with our own little, well, it's two fingers above the knee, or we've got this these equations that we've put together, which are really synonymous to don't walk more than two furlongs on a Sunday or a Saturday back then, right? We have, just like the Pharisees, we have kind of our own what would be then considered the oral traditions. And and I guess the other side of that is, is how do we respond to those that don't fit what we've come to believe is the typical box of a Latter-day Saint? And are we one that would step back when you say, you know, which group are we? And are we one that sets back and is going to be critical of those who maybe have been making certain life choices but are starting to turn the corner. Maybe they haven't even turned the corner already. Maybe they're just looking over their shoulder. And when they look over their shoulder, what do they see? Do they see us being like the Savior and thrilled that they're willing to sit down and have dinner with us, even though they still have that party they're going to afterwards? Or are we the the Pharisees that sit back and criticize them because they haven't come all the way back yet? And, And that, throughout the New Testament, I really think as members of the church, one of the things, especially those of us that have been in the church for a long time, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves over and over again is, in what ways am I becoming pharisaical? Because I really believe for most people it's inevitable that we, to a certain degree, become that way. And and if we're not careful, we go so beyond being pharisaical, we become hypocritical. And, and we miss the point of the parables, which is that they're coming back, yeah. that, that the master 
the one who never loses anything, always has his eye on all of them and is bringing them back. And and that's th- that's this first parable when it says, if you have a hundred sheep, if you lose one. And uh, my daughter, she's uh, she's finishing up fourth grade right now. Um, she's learning fractions and percentages uh-huh. right now. And so we actually read these parables last night as a family. And um, you look at the percentages. If you only lost 1% of your sheep, I think that sounds pretty good. Hey, talk to some of the ranchers around here. 1% Kill rate, yeah. This yeah. Su- this winter, hmm? it's been a brutal winter. I've talked to several. Some of the ranchers out in the Pingree area, out by where we live, um, they're experiencing twenty-five to thirty percent calf loss this year because it's been so cold and so windy and so wet. Yeah, and and that idea then of, would you really? Would you like if you lost one one percent of all is all you'd be? Like, I'm okay, or ten percent. You're like, ah, that's okay too. And then 50% at the last one as well. And so when I asked this question and, and my daughter, Melanie, uh, I said, like, what percentage is that? And she's like, 99%. So she's like pretty uh, proud of doing the math and stuff. And uh, I said, so why why does he care? And she said, because it's not 100%. And I thought, that's that's exactly right. It's not about like, well, in our ward, we're at, you know, it's our activity rate and this is the percentage of ministering that we do. Like, I know we all try, but it's not 100%. And you, you keep trying. That's the idea. And I, that's one of my favorite phrases in verse 4. If you lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he findeth it. He keeps going. And uh, when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And, and this is a moment to, I mean, for a teaching idea in a class or anything else, you could have people share or post what's their favorite Jesus as a shepherd picture. There are so many. There's beautiful stained glass ones in the Pocatello Temple. They have a beautiful stained glass of Jesus holding a sheep, and another one's right by him. There's there's other just great ones, and we all have our personal favorites. Uh, and I it so just, what's yours? I I really like the Pocatello stained glass one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like the yellow one where Jesus is holding like the one lamb. Uh-huh. That's uh, that's one of my favorites yep. as well. Um, somebody, this is probably not appropriate, but they have the Grogu, the baby Yoda. He's like they've like cropped out the sheep and he's holding baby Yoda. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> but some of the Star Wars kids here, they love that. They picture. love it. Yep. <laughs> that's, they that's do. That's their one. Um, but uh, I, I, it just made me think. Going back and and thinking and considering what makes Jesus a good shepherd, and and maybe this is a time to talk about like what are you learning here about the shepherd? What are you learning later on when when Jesus is teaching Simon Peter? Okay, I need you to be the shepherd now. I need you to feed my sheep. I need you to leave the night like leave the ninety nine. I know right now you're fishing with all of your buddies, but you need to go find the people who really need your help now. And it reminded me of uh, rereading this parable. It had reminded me of Isaiah 53, verse 6, where Isaiah writes and says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. That when we think we're the 90 and 9, we're probably not. Yeah. When I find myself in the parable, I'm the one. And frankly, I like that. Not that I've wandered, but that Jesus will take time for me because he wants 100%. And he wants 100% of me and that I'm important to him. And so that he will find me in, until I'm brought back, until I'm part of his fold. And, and I, I, that idea of where do I find myself in this parable, well, that's it. I'm, I'm the one sheep. Mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated, considering who he's talking to, the Pharisees, who they would consider themselves the 99. I, 
there's a couple of things. Verse four or verse five, he says, and when he had found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. I find it interesting that the work isn't done yet. He still has to, like, he's putting it on his shoulders and he still has to walk home. Mm -hmm. But the rejoicing starts as soon as he finds the sheep. And I think that's, that's significant. That in the work of reclaiming the Lord's lost sheep, if we're going to participate in this, we need to rejoice in the work, not just in the successes, in the effort. Because even if we haven't got them all the way home yet, if we've found those that have just wandered off and we've got them on their shoulders, there's still some work to get them back. Maybe some habits have cropped up or maybe some some uh, personal beliefs or some or some biases or, or or whatever some things have popped up while they've been in the other pastures they've they've got a taste for that those wild oats instead of what's growing back in the home pastures and there's some work to be done for that lamb and, uh, and so but that's okay we should find we should find happiness and rejoicing in the work um and then i this idea of you know speaking to the to the pharisees and talking about the 99 and certainly in their heads they're going i'm the 99 i'm the 99 but i I, there is no 99 i think that 99 is there's it i guess it could represent the group that's maybe not wandering right now but guess what the ones already in heaven (laughs) (laughs) yeah those that are those maybe it's the abrahams that have already gone on to their exaltation but but here in mortality, there is no 99. That's a fictitious, that's a myth that we often put ourselves in. Uh, there's a bumper sticker in Utah. I saw it a couple of times on my drive when I was driving across the valley from Saratoga Springs to Pleasant Grove to teach uh, over uh, over in Pleasant Grove. And I, I would see this, we had a similar commute, so I'd see this bumper sticker often. And it, it said something to the effect of, um, don't mock me because I'm going to hell faster than you are. And I think sometimes if we see other people going to hell faster than we are, we put ourselves fictitiously in this group of the in this mythical group of ninety and nine. We well, just our pastures just are you know I I don't know if they're just not as far or what but yeah we're all the one. It reminds me of President Bednar's or Elder Bednar's one by one concept. And to go back to you know Melanie's idea that it's a hundred percent. Jesus sees each one of us as an individual. It's it's a hundred percent for each one of us. So we're all to him. It's either a hundred percent or zero. He doesn't look at a ward and say, well, they've got seventy five percent, which would be awesome in a ward. If you had seventy five percent activity, Jesus would say, there's twenty five that you're at zero. And what are you doing about it? So and and just the there's the repeated verse essentially in seven and ten. Likewise, joy shall I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And it made I it makes me think who doesn't need repentance? Yeah. And I'm like, well, I think he's kind of calling them out and saying like everybody needs repentance. Therefore, that's your idea. Everybody is the lost sheep, including you. Every exactly the people who think they're not lost are often lost. You're like, no, I know exactly. I don't need any help. And you're like, well, you're going to get more lost then, mm-hmm. especially when you're neglecting or not not being willing to follow the Savior. Yeah. And as we talk about, I mean, I, at the at the heart of this, like at the heart of a lot of parables, it's this idea of becoming like God. And how can you become like God if you don't celebrate and rejoice in the things that God celebrates and rejoices in, like the return of His kids? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the coin. There's 10 of them. She loses one. Um, 
this is this this coin gets a lot. Of, it's interesting. This is the of the three. This is the only one that's an inanimate an inanimate object. So clearly making the point that this coin didn't get lost because of anything it did. This this coin is lost because of the carelessness of the person who was responsible. In this case, a woman. Um, she lost a piece. And but it's not that she lost a piece. And and one of the examples that I've thought about is you know. Ward leader who is insensitive. Uh, I, I remember several several years ago, we came into con we we had a, we had an individual in our ward who was the father in law of a of then the then general uh, relief study president, and uh, he had passed away. And then about three weeks or four weeks later, a friend of ours told us that they had bumped into this particular general authority and that she was kind of put off by the general the way the general authority had treated her she felt like she was kind of cold and uh because of our connection in the ward and that we knew that that we'd gone to that the father-in-law's funeral and and we're aware of that i said well, what day was it and she told me it was the very day her father-in-law had passed away and and to describe and it was really interesting to 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 explain to to our friend. Well, let me tell you something about her experience or what she was going through that you weren't aware of. And uh, and our friend was like, "Oh my goodness, I'm so I can't believe." But she spent four weeks upset at this general authority being. I can't believe she treated me like that. That is one example that I always think of. This is like a thoughtless or because or a situational experience where. Someone's dealing with someone, a leader or someone who has some kind of a stewardship. This this woman has the stewardship over the coins. They do something, maybe unintentional, maybe even intentional, but they do something that causes someone to get lost. And then it's not the fact that she gets lost. We're all going to say things that we don't mean. We're all going to brush people off when we don't mean to because something else is pushing, pushing on us, um, deadlines or whatever. What's significant is what she does when she realizes it's lost and verse eight uh when what woman having 10 pieces if she lose one doth not light a candle sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it and again that connects back up with um verse four and the shepherd right until he finds it and, and it's diligence and and to me of the three parables the idea that this is the easiest one to fix yeah. a sheep could go I mean, when you're out when you're out grazing, it, it could just go. Puts its head down. The and boy, yeah. gone. Mm -hmm. Like anywhere, a far country. It's he goes out of the country. He is a long ways away into Gentile land. But this one right here, it's like you have your set parameters. This coin is somewhere in this house. And to your point, if it's neglect or if it's it, you know, we've offended somebody, it's the easiest one to fix. Yeah. Because you have to just take a large dose of humility if you are the woman right here in this parable and say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't considering and I, we messed up. I messed up. And you you correct it very quickly and easily and diligently. Don't get me wrong. Like she lights a candle. She works at it. Like work is still involved in this parable, but it's in the house. Yeah. It's not way out there in the country. And so that was a that was an interesting comparison, I think, to. To these two other parables yeah i think it is interesting to watch these parables like each parable has something that sets it apart from the others um, that makes it different 
and so in this one, it's an inanimate object. Um, it's, but it's, and it's one that you just go find. Um, with the par same with the parable of the lost sheep. You just go get it and you just bring it back. And there's not a lot of, you know, you just, you just go get it and go find it. It's interesting when you get to the parable of the prodigal son, the dad doesn't go looking. And I, it, that's one of those things that sets it apart from, from the other two, that there is, there's not a search involved. Um, so as you, as you change gears and get to the prodigal son, I think most of us are aware of, you know, the dad comes, to, some come, son comes to him, says, hey, I want everything that follows to me. I want my inheritance now. Essentially, I wish you were dead. Which is very offensive. Extremely. I mean, in the culture, in the time, but that's essentially what he's telling his father is, you're dead to me. Yeah. I want my money right now, and I don't care about you. When I was, I don't know how old, my dad could tell you how old I was. Old enough to know better, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I said to him one time, and I, I think I vaguely remember the setting. I think we were here in Pocatello at my grandpa's, and we were shooting. And if I remember the story right, my dad tells it that I turned to him and said, hey, when you die, do I get your gun? <laughs> and he says, yeah, yes, I guess you will. I don't have any brothers. Yeah. It's just me. Yeah. Uh, my sister was a dancer and had no interest in dancing. <laughs> so I plan on holding my dad to that. By the way, that I get all it's now guns. on the internet. So that's yeah, my, uh, my nephews, <laughs> they're going to have to you know, start, start giving me now. Yes. But he's yeah. like, hey, can I have your watch with your dad? <laughs> your watch with your dad. Exactly. That's, that's the idea. It's exactly. Like, it's like that's a very offensive thing. Right? Yep. Well, and then I even told my dad, oh, I'm going to find out how much they are. I'm going to sell them for $5 less or whatever <laughs> the exact was. But I, it was all about I'm going to go make money off your guns. I didn't, it wasn't even that I wanted the guns. Right. I like, I am the kid. He saw dollar story. signs. Yeah. He saw dollar signs. And so the, he does that. And then he takes that and he goes off in a far country. And, man, you can have some fun with these with these phrases um far country wasted his substance with riotous living uh and when he'd spent all he's he's wasted it all and and this is the this is the neat part you're you're talking about the specifics when he spends all the world takes everything and gives nothing mm -hmm. by the end of this or like next two or three verses he has nothing left and that's exactly what the world does that's what satan does he takes everything that is good in inheritance a great thing a father to to try and provide for his kids, and it gives nothing back. Yeah. It does leave you desolate um, and, and leaves you with nothing. Um, and it's interesting. It, when, when he had spent all, in the story, he spends everything he has, and then a famine arises, um, and he has nothing. And it says he began to be in want. Um, it's interesting. I, I really think, as it talks about him beginning to be want, one of the things I've thought about with this young man is he's been wanting all, all along. He just wanted the wrong stuff. So he's lacked, I guess that's a better way of putting it, he's lacked in perspective and in priorities. And so he sets his heart on his dad's inheritance and he gets it. And because he's put his heart in the wrong thing in the world, he eventually loses it all because the world doesn't replace what it gives. And eventually, he be, and then it says he began to be in want. And this idea that once you've lost everything you've set your heart on, then you start to want. Uh, there's a great 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. Have you seen that? Early, early. I think it's after his first Super Bowl. He's a young kid. It's a young Tom Brady. He's just signed a huge contract with the Patriots. And he says to – who's the great 60 Minute interview? 
Wallace? Wallace. I think it's Mike Wallace who's talking to him. And Tom Brady looks at him and he's like, man, you think I have everything. I've got a huge contract. I'm a Super Bowl MVP. Like, I, you think that there is nothing. But why do I have why do I have such a big emptiness? It's a fascinating clip, and and maybe in fact maybe I'll just throw it in here. But um, there's this point where I think when our when when we start when we set our hearts on the wrong things, and those things lead. Initially, I think we feel like we want what we've been missing or what we've lost. But at some point, verse 17, I love the phrase. My favorite phrase in the whole verse, in the whole, in the whole parable is, came to himself. There's that moment where, and, and I see him coming to himself in his priorities. All of a sudden, everything I had, all of the money, all of the, the clothes, all of the girls, all of the drugs, whatever it was that I was spending my inheritance on, that I wasted it on, there comes a point where you get some perspective. You come to yourself and you realize that didn't help me. That didn't give me what I was seeking. That didn't satisfy what I needed. And so he says in verse 18, um, verse 17, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee and am no, worth, more, no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And there's this point where you're like, man, it would be better to be a servant in my dad's house than it would be to be after all my money and and that phrase i i couldn't help but think i mean there's so many specifics here feeding swine would be the lowest thing that a jewish person could do swine are unclean to them and so being in a foreign country and like not even getting a job to eat corn husks like he's got the worst job in the world but then when he says he he comes to himself and then all he he says i'll just be a servant I, i think that even then even when we realize that we've sinned or we've done something wrong, we're like, I don't deserve what God gives. He, he's, he's selling himself short still. He's still underestimating his father's compassion, what, how his father's going to react. And, and I feel that's important. Though. There yes. comes a point when we have to underestimate. Because I think he's been overestimating himself and, for too long. And that's the beautiful part about Heavenly Father is that even we know how compassionate he is and how loving he is and that the father gave him his inheritance before he died mm-hmm. that he, he just heavenly father is so good to us and jesus christ is so good to us that we sell their mercy short sometimes yeah. that we can't even begin to comprehend what they'd be willing to do to us when we go back and we're like I, i'm worthless i just want to take people's shoes off when they get to the celestial kingdom that's just the job yeah, i want I just that's all that. i deserve mm-hmm. And but, they're like, no, you don't deserve that. You you deserve more. But until you get to that and point, yeah. you can't really sing I stand all amazed. There's this point, there's this fine balance between meek and humility and, and acknowledging that it's on the merits of Jesus that everything we get. And then I, that point where we let them come back and tell us, no, I, I'm giving you everything. Mm-hmm. But before you can get to that point, before you can get to, to the embrace of the Father, there's this point where we have to realize that, that we aren't enough, that it is about Jesus, and it is all of my works, all of my efforts, there's, there's going to come a time, whether we're the youngest son in a far country or you know, the older son back at home doing his works so that his dad will give him what he wants. There comes a point where we have to, to realize and acknowledge that it's not about my works at all. It's all about Jesus. And 
and this acknowledgement that I don't deserve it. Like not only is it not about me, but I have absolutely no right to claim it. I get to just sit back and, and accept it. And and there's a certain confidence that comes. It's this weird, it's this weird place that the father balance. and they, yeah. that they put us in, that the father and the son put us in in the sense that you can't take it for granted, but yet there's a certain confidence that comes because you know we can expect it, because you know it's coming. Yep. I, I think this dad is consistent in the story. He's consistent with how he treats both boys. Uh-huh. He's consistent in looking out for them. He's consistent in going to them. Everything that he does in the story is consistent, and you can tell that he's probably done this their whole lives. Mm-hmm. He has always been that kind of dad, which means that that's why he goes back to him. And, and you're considering characteristics of Jesus Christ or of Heavenly Father – and you realize that consistency is one of the big aspects of that, that they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. So verse 20, he, he gets up, picks himself up out of the swaller and, um, out of the, out of, and, and starts heading back, goes back to home. And I love the phrase, but when he was yet a great way off, it, it tells you the dad's looking. He's not forgotten about him. I do find it interesting, that, and I think we mentioned this earlier, that this is the only parable where the lost isn't searched for. The dad doesn't go looking for him. Um, probably has to do with the fact honoring the young man's agency, and this is like you chose to be there, and now. Um, but the fact that he's not looking, the, the fact that the dad's not searching for him, the way the shepherd and the way the woman did in the previous parables, doesn't mean he's not watching. Yeah, doesn't not mean looking. he's not looking. Yeah. Like this son is never out of his dad's mind. He's never out of his out of his prayers. And so as soon as he sees him turn, as soon as he sees him come up over the hill, and there's that great video from the um, the, the church's video that they did, and, and it's, you know, he just barely peeks, and the dad's running to him. Mm. And, you know, kind of a, that's not, that's not a, that's not a, what's the word? That's not that dignified look, that if you're a householder in Jerusalem, that you don't want to be the one running to the, the typical dad, the stereotypical dad, right, is the one that's like, you come to you me. Come to me. Yeah. And when you get here, then you beg, and then we'll see, and I'm going to keep that stern look. Like this dad totally throws off that stereotype, runs to him, has So like the Savior, starts with compassion, runs, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Um, and then the son repeats to him, he's like, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I've spent your inheritance. I don't have a place in your house as a son. Because there's no inheritance left for me. But please let me be a servant. Let me work. And not really work off my debt. It's just I want to be a servant because I know how you take care of servants. And I, I need to be taken care of that way. Um, and in, in 22, he, he says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And shoes would have represented that he's not a slave and he's not a servant. Mm-hmm. That uh, a lot of Certainly slaves, but definitely servants, uh, they likely didn't have shoes. And so the, the fact that he's saying, like, no, you're, you're in here, that you are, like, he's accepted him back and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. And, and he's essentially, he's giving these as commandments, mm-hmm. the father is. He's saying, like, this is what I need everybody else to do in preparation for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. There, there is an element of all of these that there's differences in all of them, and then there's similarities there's, in all yep. of them. And and one of the things is we need to be happy when people return. 
we need to be as happy as God is when we return. And that, that's, that really is a great thing. I, I personally, I love, I love stories where, where people share like, I wandered a little bit, but I'm back. And I, I don't love that they wandered. I love that they're back. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the emphasis that I love. And, and when people share stories about how they joined the church and how they met missionaries, I love those stories because it's that idea like there is a lot of rejoicing in it. On, on Saturday, I had the opportunity to go to the temple with uh, one of my students who she's the only member of the church in her family. Joined the church, I don't know, 18 months ago in high school. And a bunch of her roommates were there with her and stuff. And it was just a neat opportunity to, to see that there is a lot of rejoicing when people are doing the right thing and when they're coming back to where they belong. I, and that is the one thing. I, to me, that's what the Savior is pointing to with the Pharisees and Pharisees is you of all people should be celebrating the fact that the sinners and the publicans are sitting down and, and are open to spiritual discussion. That is, it's the one. It's the one thing that's in every one of these parables that is meant to kind of call a contrast to the murmuring that's going on in front of the Savior with regards to his dinner guests. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the issue with the, the elder son. I, to the be honest, other prodigal. <laughs> usually, yeah, usually we treat this parable as though the man only had one son. We forget all about the elder son because, and some of that's because of the title, the prodigal son. Uh, I think it's Timothy Keller. Is his name? I meant I looked at the book before I left and I forgot it. Timothy Keller has a book called *The Prodigal God*. It's a it's an amazing book. Um, it's a short read. It's really easy. Not a Latter Day Saint. Timothy Keller has this ministry in New York that is um, that's really he's really had a profound effect there. Not just in his personal ministry, but also in his writing. He's a he's a prolific writer and very good. But he, his book it's one I recommend to a lot. Uh, I, I'll, I recommend it quite a bit. Um, and he talks about this parable being misnamed. He says this name shouldn't, in fact, the name of the book, The Prodigal God, he suggests this parable should be called The Prodigal God. He said the, the root uh, of the word prodigal has to do with wantonly or wastingly Recklessly uh, extravagant. Yeah, reckless spending. Um, and it has to do with, yeah, it's, it's my kids when you give them $1,000 and they walk into a Nike store. That's what prodigal <laughs> means. So... Um, and, and Keller's point is, yes, the younger son goes and wastes his inheritance in a far country, but this is way more about the father who is just wantonly or recklessly loving us. Um, and so there's this there's this second story. The, the story goes on. He says, and he called one of his servants. The, the, the elder son was in the field. Now, I, you know, I almost wonder if in the field – means you know two or three days away or it wouldn't have been uncommon for your if you've got flocks and if this is the elder son he's probably not out tending them like a shepherd but he's but he could be going out to check on those that are you know and maybe he's making the rounds i don't think it's just in the backyard and so when he shows up to the house the music and everything else probably catches him off guard he's like hey what's going on so he calls one of the servants says hey what are what's going on what's 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 happening at the house? Verse 27, he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And then verse 28, he was angry. There's no rejoicing. This is, the older brother is the Pharisee. 
The Savior's saying you're not rejoicing with the publicans and the sinners who have started to come back. And now in this parable, he pointedly says, you're, you're more upset about it. You're upset about the fact that I'm eating with them. Um, and, and then he refuses to go in, and therefore his father comes out. You talked about the consistency of the father. In both cases, the father goes out to them. And interestingly enough, in Jewish culture, this would have been a serious offense to require your dad. Your dad has asked that everybody come in to the house. This would have been a serious offense to the father, so much so that he would, in some dads, they would be on, they would have the grounds to, to disown him and say, you're not my son. I asked you to come in. You didn't. Um, but he doesn't. He goes out and entreated him. Uh, it's the same thing. He went out with compassion. He goes to him. He falls on him. He's, he's nurturing him. He's suckering him. Um, and then tries to help him see the experience the way he sees it. Um, and, and 29, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that uh, the, the brother says, uh, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I may make merry with my friends. Now, in my mind, a, a kid, you know, would be a, a baby goat or maybe a baby lamb or something like that, that uh, he's like, you killed the fatted calf. That's a, that's the greater, it's more valuable. And he said, you didn't even give me a goat to have. But the point that I like is in 29 where he says, I've never disobeyed you. Uh-huh. But the commandment he just gave was give him the best robe, give him the best ring, everybody have a party. And in the moment that he's saying, I've never disobeyed you, the father's got to be thinking, you just did. You're disobeying me right in now. In this moment. Right now. In the very moment, yeah. yes. So uh, th- that idea that as soon as we start to think that, I've never done anything wrong. Well, you just have. Or the minute you start to think, I don't have any pride, you just got it. Mm-hmm. Those moments yeah. where you, it's just, when we have a, to look inside always first. When you're a Pharisee and you're looking at the sinners going, I'm better than them, you're not anymore. <laughs> yes. It's just that interesting parallel. Yeah, it's like the humility and pride. As soon as you think you don't have pride, you probably have pride that you don't have pride. Yeah. Um, and I think – so Timothy Keller, this is another idea that I got from his book that I was just super fascinated with. He talks about this idea of leveraging our obedience. We remind God of all the things we've done for him, and then we use that to leverage him and try and get him to do what we want him to do. And so I think about Latter-day Saints who oftentimes we go to the temple or we fast or we pray or we serve or we do all of those things that we do to get the – particular blessing we're seeking at any given time and when it doesn't come we, we fasted a couple of months in a row and we've been to the temple extra times and then we sometimes if we're not careful we find ourselves on our knees saying reminding god of all that we've done for him in an attempt to leverage him and convince him to do now now there's a fine balance because god said ask and seek and knock but if we're not careful we cross the line between obeying those commandments and becoming like this older brother where we're leveraging and we're reminding God and trying to control an outcome rather than coming to know God through those things and trusting that his outcome is better than the one we would pick for ourselves. And so I, this idea of it, I, I can't read this parable without thinking about Keller's imagery of me leveraging God with, with my pathetic collection of sometimes accidental obedience more than even <laughs> intentional. Um, and then that idea of me trying to 
convinced the most powerful, most intelligent, all-knowing being in the world. This He is the God of the universe. And me trying to manipulate him, so to speak. And and I, I just see the tenderness again of the father here. In, in verse 30, the son is still speaking to his father. He says, as soon as this thy son has come, and in verse, well, in verse 30, so he calls him, he's like, that's your son. He doesn't call him his brother. Mm-hmm. At that moment, he's saying like, that. that's your other son. And then in 31, he said unto him, son, so he's reminding him, you're also my son. Thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. He's reminding him, not only is he my son and you're my son, but you are brothers. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned earlier the, that idea of the other prodigal, and that Elder Holland gave that talk in 2002 or something. I think we had looked it up. and mm-hmm. um, He says this is part of his talk. This is April 2002, the other prodigal. The older brother lacks the one thing that might make him the complete man of the Lord he nearly is. He has yet to come to the compassion and mercy, the charitable breadth of vision, to see that this is not a rival returning. It is his brother. That that idea of, of when the father says, everything I have is already yours. He's already wasted his inheritance, which means that robe that he's wearing, you should want to give it to him. That ring on his finger, you should want to give him that ring. Not that I'm taking it from you, but that you want him to have it. Because he says, you and I need to be the same. And the purpose of these parables, like when they're calling their friends, the idea is the friend is just as happy as you are. It's not their money. It wasn't their sheep. It's not, it's not your son. You're the brother. But you need to be just as happy as God is when people are returning. And God is saying, like, however you treat other people, you treat me. And, and I'm treating them all the same. And so you have this idea where it's, they're all connected in a triangle type of a way. Mm-hmm. And that idea of you, when they come back, be as happy as God is that they're doing the right thing, that focus on their good things that they're doing and their path to success and their path coming back. Yeah, I, it's interesting. The, the real irony that it, it, whenever, this, the, har- whenever the, the Pharisees come up and you get – the Pharisees and the sinners and the publicans and, and the way that they interact, you know, several times throughout here, we know that they are aware of the, the great commandment to love the Lord thy God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's it's interesting how often in their focus on the minutia, they forget the grand scale of things. And the biggest scale, the biggest point being, these are your brothers and sisters. And you should, in, and as and as Latter Day Saints in the 21st century, as we navigate a world that is becoming more and more outspoken, often against the standards that we hold. How do you navigate those waters while holding true to the standards, and at the same time, treating and loving those with differences, especially those with differences of opinions, as our siblings, as, as those that we love and. And love the way we're supposed to love, because I guess not all brother and sister relationships yeah. are the greatest. Right. But, but how do I how do I navigate those differences on the on this on this craft on this boat of brotherly and sisterly love? And and can I express my differences in a way that still shows respect and admiration and 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 excitement for when those that I've 
seen maybe his arrival come back and, and back into the fold as well. So um, that maybe is part A then. I think so. Uh, I think we're going to, yeah, we're gonna, we need so to at least do ladder. A little bit longer, but. So we'll come back and do 2.0 later in the week and, and get that out on, on both the, the YouTube as well as the, the podcast. Yeah. So. And thanks for joining us and uh, dig into these parables and have some fun with them. These are great ones to talk about with, with families, obviously, when you have a family dynamic right here and also in ministering assignments or other callings and things that you have that uh, the idea of reaching out and finding. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Enjoy. And we'll see you in, uh, well, we'll see you in a couple of days probably. Yeah. For us, you, you might be seeing it on Saturday <laughs> and you'll see it back to back. So thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. Well, thanks again for joining us on take a second for come follow me brother black and myself want to emphasize that in this episode or any other episode there's nothing that we've said that is meant to or can in any way be interpreted as the official doctrine or policy or practice of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints uh, brother black and myself simply represent two guys that enjoy talking about scripture and and on our own life experiences as it relates to the gospel of jesus christ and, and hope that in sharing some of our thoughts and, and insights, but certainly our personal opinions and nothing more, that uh, maybe it might open up the scriptures a little bit to you. So thanks again for joining us on Take a Second, and we will see you in our next episode.